love this time of year in our area because we always get to rub rub it into our family in Ohio how nice it is here. <laughs> they don't love that so much. But what, what this time of year means for our family, maybe like yours, especially if you have kids, is lots of trips to the park. We, we love going down to the park with our two boys, Jaden and Evan. And last Sunday night, I was down there with them playing some baseball. We took a bat and some gloves and I was throwing them some pitches. And Jaden stepped up to the plate and I I, threw, I was throwing them some, and we were having a good time until I looked up, and to my horror, his little brother Evan was, was a ways behind him, and I looked up, and the first thing I saw when I looked at Evan was a pit bull with his paws up on his shoulders like this, face to face with my boy. There's a lady with a pit bull on a leash like this. My honest, instant reaction, get that dog away from my son! She didn't look too happy. I didn't really care. Okay, she, she went on to, to walk her dog, and then when she, she walked the dog back close, close to me later on, and I said, you know, I don't really know your pit bull. Um, I, was, I was trying to strike up a conversation as much as I could, and she went on to, to try to convince me that her, her, her pit bull was okay. She told me about the 10 grandkids that it had been around, and Basically, what's going on is it's her word versus the many news articles that I've read. A friend who's been knocked down by a pit bull and had her hip broken. And it's kind of like, why should I take her word for it, you know? And the truth is, you know, we could have gone through a process. She didn't offer and I didn't ask. She could have said, well, I'll bring my grandkids and their families and they'll all testify as to how nice this pit bull is and... I could have said, well, I'll watch him for a couple days at the park and make up my mind. But the truth is, it's not a big deal whether I allow, whether I trust that pit bull and allow it into my family's life. Is it, you know, I don't, I'm not going to have a, a pit bull shaped void in my heart <laughs> if I don't trust that pit bull to, to come into my life. But I thought about what happened there and how often it is that Many situations in life, when we choose as to what we're going to trust, are just like that. Somebody will tell us something, and our first thought is, why should I take their word for it? I think it's, it's true even when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people say a lot of things about Jesus Christ, who he was, what he did, but it's a natural reaction and a fair reaction on our part to say, why should I take your word for it? Why should I trust him into my life? What I want to say here is while it doesn't matter a whole lot whether you allow a pit bull into your life or not, I really believe that who Jesus is is worthy of our utmost consideration. It's worthy of going beyond, well, I don't know why I should take their word, so let's just move on. It's worthy of exploring. Why do I think that's so important for us to take the time to explore? Well, for one thing, it's it's because of the kinds of things he said about himself. See, if you read the New Testament, you'll see quickly that Jesus did not just come to give us a list of do's and don'ts. He said an awful lot about who he was. He said he is the source of ultimate satisfaction. 
How many of us spend years and years looking for what is going to meet those deepest needs of my heart? He says, I will. That's what he means when he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever eats of me will never hunger again. That's what he means when he says, I'm the living water. Whoever drinks of me will never thirst again. He's ultimate satisfaction. He said he was connection to God, the Father. How many of us are looking for that supernatural element in our lives? He said, I am that connection. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, I'm the door. You go through me. He's direction. How many of us are looking for the way? Just where do I go? What do I do? He says, I'm the good shepherd who lays down my life for my sheep. He goes on to say, my sheep know my voice. They hear my voice and they follow me. I will admit to you that I need direction. (laughs) I wonder if there's any of the rest of you that would be humble enough to admit that. He says, I can offer you that direction. Along the same lines with direction, he says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. If you ever feel like me, Everything is dark around me. I have no idea where to go, and I'm afraid if I take a step, I'm going to fall off a cliff. (laughs) He says, I'm the light. I can show you the way, give you that direction. He says he's the source of eternal life. He said to Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. If you like me and your life is flying by, like 40's coming soon for me, I'm like, man. <laughs> Where did that go, those 39 years? I know some of you got some more. <laughs> we, we want things to last forever. We want to have a lasting impact. We want to know that we're going to be around forever and experience life forever. He says, I've got the answer to that. You don't have to fret because your life here on this earth is, is flying away. I am eternal life. And when the Bible talks about life, it's not just this last and more days. Life is always in the context of meaningful relationship with God and meaningful relationship with others. So because he says these things, I'm ultimate satisfaction, I'm the connection to God, I'm direction, I'm eternal life, I believe he's worthy of taking our time to say, Who is this Jesus? Should I believe him? He asks an important question to his disciples in the Bible. Who do you say I am? He asked his disciples that while he was here. I believe he asked that to each person here this morning as well. I think it's an important question because there are many views in this world of how do, I, how do I connect to God? How do I find that direction and meaning? There are even many views of Jesus. I mean, you just look at this selection of Time and, and Newsweek and Christianity Today and Life Magazine, and you can believe that every one of those articles is going to give you a slightly different spin on who Jesus is. On, on TV, you see how hungry we are to find out who He is. CNN, Finding Jesus, Faith Factor Forgery. 
Fox, Killing Jesus, History Channel, The Bible, Discovery, The Lost Tomb of Jesus. There's a natural propensity in us to try to answer this question. And that's why these shows are watched. There are many different views of Jesus. Maybe you've run into a few of them as you've talked to folks. There's the Jesus out there who doesn't really think sin is that big of a deal. There's the Jesus who's merely a good teacher. Nothing more. There's the Jesus who's only a social revolutionary, primarily concerned with things of this world. There's what I like to call the potato head Jesus. We pick only the parts we like and put them on there. We leave out the parts we don't. Justin told me about a book called The Imaginary Jesus, where a man has a dream where he, he walks, walks around and he meets all these imaginary Jesuses that we've all created in our minds. And in the book, he, he runs into the social justice Jesus, who is all arms. He has no mouth. Just all arms. And then he runs into the evangelical Jesus, who's one big mouth and has no arms. I think a book like that causes us to ask, who are the imaginary Jesuses that I've created in my mind? Even Thomas Jefferson, in 1820, six years before he died, he, he got a hold of his New Testament, and he cut out all the passages that had any miracles in them, got rid of those, and pasted Jesus' teachings into a book. Only the passages that included the other teachings and events without the supernatural side, and he called it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. He removed anything that he thought was contrary to his reason. The copy and paste Jesus. There are many views of who Jesus is in the modern world. Uh, there were many views when Jesus was with his disciples. And that's why in Luke chapter 9, he sits down with his guys right after he had fed the 5,000. And he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They said to him, some say, you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Now you see that these aren't derogatory answers, but it's interesting to note how many different answers there were. And if these guys probably could have gone on with more. If you'd ask the Pharisees, he's a subverter of our tradition. He's evil. Many different responses from the crowd. Interesting experiment. As you hang out with your family and friends, a lot of times we do all the talking. It's helpful sometimes to ask a question. Ask your family and friends, who do you say Jesus is? And take note of the many different answers that you receive. But the thing about Jesus with his disciples and with us is he's not content to ask us only what do they think. He wants to ask each one of us the same question he asked his disciples. He wants to make it personal. He wants to say, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? He asked that to his disciples here. And here's the thing. As we go through this question, what's cool about Jesus, he could have said just... Just look at the words I said while I was here during my three-year ministry, and that's all I'm going to give you. He's so gracious. He gives us so much more than his own words during those three years. He gives us multiple witnesses of who he was. And what I want to do briefly throughout the rest of this message is call six 
witnesses to the stand. And then we'll close by bringing it back to you and I. We're going to start with, with Peter. Peter is the first witness that we're going to call to the stand. He walked with Jesus for the three years of his ministry. And Peter is an important witness because he saw how Jesus lived on earth with his own eyes, okay? We're going to look at Peter's answer in this very passage. Peter answered, God's Messiah is who you are. Messiah means the anointed one, the the chosen one of God. And Jesus is going to go on to explain what the chosen one was here for. Listen to this. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. It was not yet time. And he said, the Son of Man, here's what the Messiah will do, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That's what the Messiah is all about. Now, when Jesus had just told this to the crowd, he had just fed him the 5,000, all this bread, and they're like, we want to make you king. You can make bread. You could lead our army against the Romans. You could feed us, and we could take over. Jesus left because that's not why he was here. It says in John's account of this, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus asked a question to his 12. You can hear his love for them and his deep friendship with them in this question. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. And look at Peter's answer in this account. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's Peter's answer. That's one of the most beautiful statements about Jesus you will find in the Bible. God revealed that to him. Peter had heard and seen things for three years with Jesus. He had heard the amazing things that Jesus had taught. Things that shook the culture like, love your enemies. He had heard Jesus say, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. He had heard Jesus say, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of God. He had heard Jesus when the crowd asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? How do we get right with God? He had heard Jesus said, the works of God are this, to believe in the one he has sent. He had heard that. He had heard things. He had seen amazing things as well. Most recently, the feeding of the 5,000 from a few fish and bread. He had watched Jesus walk into his own house and find his mother-in-law who had a fever and speak a word and the fever was gone and she was up serving them. He watched Jesus that same night filled with compassion as a crowd gathered and he healed each one that came and and cast demons out of the, the tormented ones. He saw Jesus touch a man completely covered with leprosy and watched it instantly disappear. He had seen Jesus raise a widow's son from the dead, a woman without hope. He'd seen him raise a little girl from the dead. I think as important as all that is, Peter had also experienced the grace of Jesus. You remember early on when Peter was just getting to know Jesus and he saw the miracle with the fish and 
Peter's reaction may be like some of ours. We, we think about this Jesus, and Peter said, Go away from me, for I'm a sinful man. We know our wickedness, and we know his holiness. And yet, Jesus looked at him and said, Do not be afraid, Peter. Till now you've caught fish, but I will make you a fisher of men. I know you're scared. And I'm filled with grace, and I've got a purpose for your life. Peter had experienced all that. God revealed it to him. No wonder he said, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know you're the Holy One of God. I want to call a second witness to the stand, and we'll call this one the followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus, because the way we live ought to point to who Jesus is. Would you agree? That's why right after Peter makes this declaration, Jesus tells them what followers should look like. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. All this talk about losing life and forfeiting our very self leads us to an inescapable conclusion. People who deny themselves and lose their lives for Jesus and the sake of others, whether figuratively or literally, are one of the strongest declarations as to who Jesus is. Christians get a lot of bad, bad press these days. I don't know if you've noticed. Sometimes, honestly, it's deserved. Other times, it's just a very one-sided media. But I want to share two positive stories with you that ought to reflect how our lives point to who Jesus is. One's from a missionary friend that, that Jay knows, Jay and Kathy, and I had met at the Heights Church back in the day. He wrote an email that sums up this idea. So, said, Dear friends, greetings from Singapore. I'm here training a group of Asian believers who are preparing to be cross-cultural missionaries. He says, Among my trainees are some Indonesian men. In one conversation, Bobby, one of the Indonesian men, commented to me, I have a feeling of closeness with American Christians because I have American blood running through my veins. A bit surprised to hear this, I said, what do you mean? He said that when the first two missionaries came to his people in the mid-1800s, his ancestors, who were cannibals, killed and ate them. These two missionaries were from the U.S., hence Bobby has American blood running through his veins physically. Now there's some dark, dark humor for you. Only grace covers that kind of humor. <laughs> but Walt goes on, he says, here's the rest of the story. After those two missionaries, Samuel Munson and Henry Lyman were martyred, and I'll paraphrase from here, more missionaries came. And they kept coming. And the tribal leaders in that group hesitated to kill these missionaries because they said, why would they continue to risk their lives knowing what happened to the first two they must have something extremely important to share with us. 
Long story short, after years and years of these missionaries continuing to come, a movement of faith broke out among those people. Belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ and His grace swept through that people group because of these missionaries willing to lay down their lives. Now, some of you may hear that and say, whoa, do you have to go back to the 1800s to find a story? <laughs> I want to tell you about something more recently. I don't know if any of you read the article in the New York Times by Nicholas Kristof. But he wrote an article about a man named Dr. Foster who has spent 37 years in Angola. Angola is the country in the world that has the highest mortality rate among children. Dr. Foster is a Christian missionary surgeon who raised his family there despite constant onslaughts from military groups around him. That's why he called the article A Little Respect for Dr. Foster. But listen to what Nicholas Kristof said in the New York Times just this past week. He says, in liberal circles, evangelicals constitute one of the few groups that it's safe to mock openly. Yet the liberal caricature of evangelicals is incomplete and unfair. He admits, I have little in common politically or theologically with evangelicals or, while I'm at it, conservative Roman Catholics. But I've been truly awed by those I've seen in so many remote places, combating illiteracy and warlords, famine and disease, humbly struggling to do the Lord's work as they see it. And it's offensive to see good people like this derided. He goes on, he says, I must say that a disproportionate share of the aid workers I've met in the wildest places over the years, long after anyone sensible had evacuated, have been evangelicals, nuns, or priests. Likewise, religious Americans donate more of their incomes to charity and volunteer more hours than the non-religious, according to polls. In the United States and abroad, the safety net of soup kitchens, food pantries, and shelters depends heavily on religious donations and volunteers. I read that statement. I think about a lot of you in here helping at various women's shelters and, and men's shelters. So he says, the next time you hear someone at a cocktail party mock evangelicals, think of Dr. Foster and those like him. They deserve better. You see how followers who walk in the footsteps of Jesus point to who he is. May you and I be followers like that. If we believe he is alive, may we walk in his footsteps. But there's a natural question that would rise in the minds of the disciples, and maybe it's rising in your mind right now. Why would I lay down my life for someone else? Why would I lay down my life for Jesus? Why would I lay down my life for the people around me? They're about to get an answer, at least a few of them. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. He's talking about something that's going to happen in eight days. Give them a little foretaste. Some of you are going to get a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Really, they're about to see how the Father viewed the Son. All right? We know it as the transfiguration. So I'll, now we're going to look at what the Father says about His Son. See, His Father is an important witness because while Peter and his guys knew Him for three years while He lived here, His Father has known Him from eternity past. All right? Now we're going to see His view. Luke chapter 9, about eight days after Jesus said this, 
he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Imagine being there in that moment. I love standing on the back porch with our family, watching the lightning storms out here. So bright. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. What a scene. (laughs) When you talk about mind-blowing, we thought we were just coming up here to pray or something, and then boom, he's bright as lightning, and Moses and Elijah are here too. As they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at, at Jerusalem. Now, I think it's interesting that these guys are talking about departures, because if you know your Bible, these two guys know something about cool departures. All right, Moses, God goes up on a mountain with him and says, you're going to die, and I'm going to bury you. That's pretty cool. Buried by God. All right. Elijah, if you remember your Old Testament, he went out in a chariot of fire. So these, these guys know something about departures, especially if you throw in the exodus that Moses led. But they're talking about Jesus' coming departure. It's going to blow all that old stuff out of the water. They also represent, many believe, the law and the prophets. Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets, showing that all of these pointed to Jesus. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. see that a lot. I relate to these guys. How many of you spend a lot of your life tired? But when they became fully awake, you imagine coming out of sleepiness and seeing this, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I love that uh, Luke comes right out and says, Peter did not know what he was saying. <laughs> now, he's got two things going against him. He's just coming out of this sleepy stupor, and he's seeing something that none of us have ever seen. Okay, he just didn't know what to say. But while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Peter's like, okay. (laughs) When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Now, here's the thing about this moment. These men who had lived with Jesus, they, they saw him eat, they saw him sweat, they saw him sleep. Their primary experience of him was as a man. So to them, this moment was an anomaly. They're like, whoa. But from the father's perspective, the anomaly was the manhood, wasn't it? When when we see this glimpse of Jesus in all his glory, this is how the father had known him from eternity past. It's like, yeah, that's my boy. That's my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. There's the father's witness. They talked about his departure, so we're going to fast forward to that departure. All right, we're going to call a centurion to the stand. Centurion's an important witness because he saw how Jesus died. All right? Now, this centurion was the one who orchestrated the events around the crucifixion of Jesus and the two criminals next to him. Now, as a centurion, he had probably seen hundreds, if not thousands, of these 
and orchestrated the events. So to him, your everyday crucifixion is just another day at work. As common as you going in, sitting down at your desk, turning on your computer. That's, that's what he was used to. He was hardened. He was a soldier. Just another day at the office. But this day with Jesus was going to be different. All right, Matthew 27. I want you to read the account. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Other Gospels tell us at that moment, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. And the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city, Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. Now, I've watched lots of accounts of Jesus' crucifixion. I've never seen the dead people coming out of the tombs and walking into Jerusalem. I'm thinking, man, as popular as The Walking Dead is today, somebody would get some great ratings if they'd just include that. Can you imagine? When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. This ain't just a normal day at the office anymore. And exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Battle-hardened centurion knew something different was going on here. Why? He saw how Jesus died. He heard the things that Jesus was saying from the cross earlier than this passage. He heard Jesus say of the people crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I guarantee he never heard that from anyone else on a cross. Forgive these people who have whipped me and nailed me to this cross. And we know from today that those words echo not only on those men and women that were in that crowd then, They echo to you and I because as those hymns pointed out, it was our sin that held him on that cross. It was my years in pornography and that double life that held him there. It was your sin that held him there. In his words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He hadn't seen that before. Earlier we know that it said the darkness came upon the land from noon till three. That never happened. It grew dark in the middle of the day. When he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, you talk about control. Most of us don't get to decide, short of suicide, when we're going to die, right? But Jesus had said earlier in his ministry, I laid down my life of my own accord. As soon as he said that, it was gone. That had to strike the centurion. Then the earthquake, then the walking dead. Surely, he was the Son of God. Now I want to call Thomas to the stand. we got two more. Thomas is an important witness because he saw Jesus alive after he died. All right? Some of us relate to Thomas. Jesus had shown up to some of the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas, got to love him, relate to him. He's like, hey, uh, verse 25 when they tell him we've seen the Lord, he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, 
I'm not believing this stuff. Y'all are crazy. That's in the footnotes. Watch what happened in John chapter 20, verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. (laughs) Yeah, right. So he just walks through a wall and you're like, okay. Business as usual. (laughs) No wonder he had to say that. Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. You know what Thomas' response was? My Lord... My God. You see, when somebody comes back from the dead, it has a way of changing even the most jaded skeptic in this story. Tim Keller says this. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching. But whether or not he rose from the dead. If somebody has rose from the dead on their resume, you listen to what they say. Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This last line is, we could spend a whole sermon on this. How in the world is this possible? Those who have not seen and yet have believed. Uh, that would be you and I in many ways, right? We, we, we didn't live when Jesus was here in the flesh. We didn't get to stick our hands in his side. Do we just have nothing to go on? That's where we call our sixth witness, the Bible. It's written that you and I may believe. You see, in a lot of ways, we, we think we're disadvantaged because we didn't live then. What I want to tell you is, and I believe it's, in a lot of ways, just the opposite. We got the whole story of what happened. We got it on our shelves in 17 versions, some of us. Okay. Have fun with that at a pastor's house. I was practicing a memory verse with Jaden the other night, and he missed three words. And I told him, you missed these three words. And he said, oh, I was probably saying it in a different version. <laughs> he said, nice try, kid. but if you have that bible listen to what john says right after this incident with thomas about why he wrote his book and jesus said this is really what the whole bible is about jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book but these are written that you may believe that jesus is the messiah the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why we have all these things written down. You think about the scriptures, the manuscripts, and some of you have done some study on that. We're not going to go way into it, but F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, says this, the evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. He also states that the New Testament were a collection of secular writings 
their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. Some of the guys who have studied this and are a lot smarter than me have said that much of what we believe about Julius Caesar has less historical documentation than our New Testament manuscripts. There's not a lot of Julius Caesar skeptics out there, are there? John says, these are written that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. We've looked at these witnesses that God has graciously provided and we bring it back to the personal question now. Who do you say I am? That's Jesus' question to each one in this room. And I think about a message like this and I think about our world and what I think about is there is a lot of information all right? We don't have a lack of information today. Ken Witzma, who wrote The Grand Paradox, lists these statistics. Check this out, more information. He says, there's been a nine-fold increase in the amount of digital information created and shared in the last five years. Nine times the amount. The English version of Wikipedia alone grows at a rate of 700 articles per day. There's 100 hours of video uploaded to YouTube every minute. Daily, that's 16 years of video. 500 years of video are watched on Facebook every day. 500 years. The average mobile phone user checks their phone 150 times a day. Workers are interrupted every 10 and a half minutes by social media notifications. It then takes 23 minutes for those employees to get back on task. That's $650 billion of work hours a year more than seven times the amount of money lost to smoking breaks, more than the combined value of Chevron and Google. <laughs> With all this information, I think some of what we need to decide is what information is important and what information can I just let fly on by? We, we run the risk of growing numb to the information that comes our way, always taking, always taking, always taking, and never slowing down to say, wait a second, which of this information needs to affect my life? Which of this information do I need to respond to and do something about? I believe a response to information about Jesus is essential. He invites you to look at the evidence that's been presented and answer that question. Who do you say I am? I would hate for you to sit here this morning, take in more information, and not process that question. We would have done no good. Who do you say I am? Do you believe like Peter that he's the Messiah, the Holy One of God, the one with the words of eternal life? Do you believe in a Savior who laid down his life when you look at his followers who lay down theirs? You believe like his father in Centurion that he is the Son of God. We just say with Thomas, you are my Lord and my God. Will you believe the scriptures that were written for that very purpose? My father, uh, Don Mitchell, that's my first name for those of you who didn't know. Scott's my middle name. I'm a Donald Scott Mitchell. Don Mitchell would always tell us kids as we got older into those teenage years and we talked a lot about the freedom that we have. <laughs> I'm a teenager now. Don Mitchell was fond of saying... The choice is yours, but so are the consequences. 
<laughs> that was good fatherly advice. See, the really heavy thing about those who head into a Christless eternity, those who refuse to believe in Him as their Savior, is not that they don't get what they choose. It's that they will get what they, they chose. They chose not to believe to the message they heard about Jesus. They chose separation from Him and from His Father. They got what they chose, but they find that it's the loneliest, emptiest, most unbearable thing imaginable for eternity. We're free to make our choices, but the consequences are ours as well. I think of the story with the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and Jesus talked to him and the man could not receive what Jesus said and how did he walk away? He walked away sad. Imagine that for eternity. That does not have to be our path. It does not have to be your path this morning. Will you believe him when he says... I can bring you ultimate satisfaction. I'm the bread of life, the living water. We believe him when he says, I'm the connection to God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You believe he is direction and eternal life. He asks you, who do you say I am? And he allows you to process that. One of the believers that I had the privilege of leading to Jesus by telling them about him, when I first shared about him, I'll never forget that person said, my heart wants to, but my head is saying no because I'm scared of giving control to someone else. What did I do at that moment? I said, that's okay. You, you go ahead and process what we've talked about. Pray about it. I'm not here to ram this down anyone's throat. The truth is, neither is Jesus. He's going to let us choose. So that person went home. And it was within a week or two that they called back and said, I've crossed over. I believe. And, and they told me a couple instances in their life that God had set up just to draw them in. And they believed. He allows us to process he tells us the consequences of our choice. The, the choice of choosing him has its own consequences as well. And they're wonderful. C.S. Lewis, many of you love to read him. talks about his own moment where he believed in Jesus. And surprised by joy. He called the book that because he thought that when he believed in Jesus, it was going to be like diving into a cold mountain stream. Nobody wants to do that, you know, a freezing mountain stream. If you've ever been up in Sedona in the springtime when it's coming down from Flagstaff, ugh. My father-in-law did that one time, and we still tease him to this day because he went, whoa! <laughs> it was cold. That's what he thought believing in Jesus was going to be like. He said, I thought it was going to be like diving into a cold mountain stream. But he goes on to say, I found it delightful. That's the invitation. Father, I come before you this morning and I thank you for Jesus who died for my sins and the sins of each one in this room. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life 
or his sheep. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who has yet to meet him, who has yet to trust him, that, that they would turn to you and trust this morning. They would say to you in their own words from their own heart of belief, Jesus, I believe. I believe that you took my sin to the cross, that you paid for it, that when you said it is finished, that paid the price for all my sin, past, present, and future. I thank you for that. I believe you rose again, victorious, signifying that your Father accepted your gift in my place. And not only do I believe it in my head, I receive you, Jesus. I invite you to be my Savior, to save me. You've crossed that threshold this morning. I'd love to talk with you. Most important decision you will ever make. Most important question you will ever answer. Who do you say I am? For those of us who have made that decision, Father, I pray that you would inspire us again with a Savior who came to seek and save what was lost. That you gave your life for me, Jesus. Why does someone do that? Except for amazing love. Greater love has no man than he lay down his life for his friends. Thank you for that. And your resurrection power and the Holy Spirit that you've given us, we pray that we would live lives that point to who you are. In our community here, our local shelters and charities and folks in need, and around the world, as we read in those articles. Jesus, thank you that you are not only a suffering Savior, but you're a victorious, risen King. If you weren't, all of this would be for naught. We shouldn't even be here. This is a waste of time. But if you were, and you were, you've got everything to celebrate everything to live for. Please, Jesus, help us to live in that manner. It's in your name we pray.